You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hi, this is Noah Rosenfarb here with another in our series of the Vestopedia Exit Strategy podcast. Today's guest is Matthew DiGeronimo. Matt is not only a nuclear submarine uh, officer, naval officer, but uh, having retired from the military, he entered the world of M&A. He acquired an existing M&A firm that was struggling in Hawaii, but he breathed new life back into it. He's done over 100 successful sales since acquiring Smith Floyd Hawaii. Uh, Matt has also been selected by Hawaii Business Magazine as one of the 20 people likely to positively impact the Hawaii business community in the next 20 years. So Matt's a great guy, a longtime friend. Uh, He's the host of the weekly radio show, The Smith Floyd Water Cooler, which is heard on KGU AM 760 out in Hawaii at 11 a.m. And Matt, I'm real glad you could uh, be here today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, No, I'm uh, honored to be uh, a guest. Terrific. So, Matt, you've been in the M&A business now a few years. Um, you did 100 successful deals, which is a great track record. What, what, Based on that experience, what would you say are three things any owner can start doing right now to prepare for their exit? Uh, I think the top three things would be uh, do uh, whatever you can to make yourself a smaller asset of the company. Um, most business owners have um, have a problem with that, but the, the business owner needs to be a, small, a smaller asset, not a larger asset of the company. Uh, establish ways where the business can run um, uh, in a consistent manner, uh, with or without any key employees, and then the number one way to do that is through policies and procedures. So if uh, you have not implemented written policies and procedures, I would recommend you do that. And number three is uh, cleaning up your financials. If there's uh, if there's any commingling between different corporations or different lines of revenue, just uh, separate them and make them as clean as possible. Um, you know, almost as if, you know, look at your financials as if uh, with, a, with a fresh set of eyes as if you're looking at them for the first time because that's the, the very first thing that's going to turn a potential buyer away is if they can't, they can't make heads or tails of your financial statements. So, Matt, most of the owners that call you, and those hundred owners that you helped in the last few years, what's their business like in terms of size, number of employees? What's the market that you work in? Yeah, so, you know, in terms of you know, using the, the term M&A 
which is somewhat subjective, right? The, I often say the difference between business brokerage, M&A, and investment banking is simply just the size of their client, and there is no exact threshold of where you enter into each, uh, each, each of those three industries. Uh, we tend to focus on smaller businesses. So I think the, the largest business we sold is a $5 million business, and we've also sold a $30,000 business. Uh, if I had to say the average of the 100 businesses that we sold, um, I think it would probably be about a $700,000 business, uh, which on average would have 10-plus employees um, uh, with revenues between um, $700,000 and $5 million. So, you know, with that in mind, I think your first bit of advice, which is to be a small asset to your business, for owners that fit into that sweet spot of, you know, a handful of employees, maybe a million dollars, two million dollars of revenue, typically they are the business, or at least they see themselves that way. So what recommendations would you have to them as a way to frame it so that they could start getting themselves out of being the most important person at the office? Yeah, I think you know the mental the the mental model that I try to share with people is that, that too many business owners look at the sale of a business similarly to the way a athlete looks at a competition such as a race where you're you're running 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 you cross the finish line you win you look at the judges you're like how did I do what's my prize. And that would be the equivalent of financial success. But but really, the reality is much different than that. Instead of thinking of it as something that you've achieved, I think the mental model has to be closer to how well did you prepare the business for a guest. Meaning, like, you know, you're going to have people over to your home. You clean up your home. You do all the things in your house to prepare for guests. How well did you prepare your business for someone to come in, sit in your desk, do your job, and, and have confidence that the business is going to continue to perform? And if you're honest with yourself, in most cases, it's like, well, geez, he, he, he well, I'm not even close to that. You know, so the uh, if that if that's true, or if you can be honest enough with yourself to 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 realize that it's true, you you have to take action to reverse that. And I think that it's not something that can be done overnight. Um, so we're not trying to build the Great Wall of China overnight, but we're just trying to lay a brick a day. So, you know, what can I do today, something small, that would take something that I do on a daily basis and either turn it over to someone else or write it down so that it's standardized regardless of who does it. I guess that rolls us into your second point about policies and procedures. So, you know, most owners in small businesses 
if they haven't yet read the E-Myth, I'd certainly encourage them to do so, and that's kind of a Bible for standardizing and getting policies and procedures down. Uh, what What's your advice to owners that, you know, ha- have never thought about this before? How should they get started? Well, I, I, uh, first off, I I want to reinforce your recommendation about reading the email. If, if uh, anyone listening to this has not, um, it's definitely a must read. I think the the message that I would send would not only go out to people who haven't yet established policies and procedures, but even to those who have, because. Um, well, I, have, I got several thoughts in my mind at the same time, and I'm like, it's like my computer's locked up. Hold on. Um, all right, so let's first talk to the people who haven't even considered it. The, you got to start. And if, if most people will have a million excuses as to why this is not the right answer for them. And the reality is that everybody hates writing policies and procedures. I've never met anyone in my life, and I spent a career in a, the nuclear industry where everything was policies and procedures, and I've never met anyone that enjoys it. I mean, it's just it's a horrible experience. Nobody likes to, like, sit down and write a policy. And because we hate it so much, we come up with all types of excuses as to why that's not important in my particular case. Well, I would like to disabuse you of that notion because I don't care what your case is. It is important to you. And you can't sit down and write a book of policies and procedures to cover everything in your company. Don't think of it as an event. Just think of it as a small daily habit that you would like to start and then trust me (laughs) or just trust in the process that if you do that in a year or two you will have you'll you'll have successfully put together policies and procedures for the company so you have to start if that means you start with a policy on how do we answer the telephone here or how do we handle the the coffee uh, uh, maker and its supplies then then start there and, you know, if you, if you find that kind of silly, I'd ask you to go ahead and call a McDonald's in San Francisco and a McDonald's in uh, New York. And I guarantee you they answer the phone the same way. And if you, if you think that's a coincidence, then call a, uh, call five other McDonald's. And you, I, I, I can guarantee you you'll find that they all answer the phone the same way. And that's because successful uh, businesses that find themselves successfully in a position to scale or to sell know that policies and procedures are the key to that. Yeah, one of the recommendations I often have for owners, um, aside from keeping a journal by their desk where they just write down the activities that they do um, and just scribble those notes so that we could review them after a week and a month and see what's repetitive and what's not, is to use a, a piece of software called Chrometa. And uh, what's interesting about Chrometa is downloads it onto your computer and tracks all the websites you visit, all the software programs you use, and you could get a real good sense 
after just looking at the data that that software produces, how an owner spends their time at their PC. And, uh, you know, sometimes you might find that they're visiting websites that they might not otherwise want to go to during the day, that they've got to, you know, block those websites to get them more focused to make time to do the things that they need to do at their office to help them prepare for an exit. Uh, so how about the third recommendation you had, Matt, on cleaning up financials? I know one of the things that, that I see in my business is oftentimes my clients don't have reviewed or audited financial statements. And, you know, the, the businesses that I deal with tend to have, you know, $20 million or more in revenue. And oftentimes, if, especially if they have inventory, we recommend they get an audited statement a couple years prior to sale so that when it comes time for an acquisition, a divestiture, they're able to produce those financials and nobody has to recreate them. Uh, how about in the, in the owners that you're dealing with, you know, their personal expenses, their Amex bills, how do you, how do you recommend they handle that in those years before the sale? Well, I think the yeah, it's a it's a challenge, but I think that the the due diligence process is going to happen, right? I mean, it's like uh, it's like we hope that we're not going to be audited by the IRS. So there's things in our personal and business lives that we do, kind of. Uh, because we think we might be able to get away with it, or you know, it, we always hope that that, that we're never going to be the victim of an IRS audit. Well, if you're thinking of selling your business, you are going to be audited. You know it's going to happen. So, you know, don't cross the street to get your butt kicked, right? Like you, you know, if you're crossing the street selling your business, on the other side of that street is an audit waiting for you. So why would you waste your, your time and sort of, um, I'm not going to say the embarrassment, but the, the emotional um, damage associated with you know, having a potential buyer just tear apart your financials with a million questions that you can't answer? You know, why would you intentionally do that to yourself? Uh, and the way to prevent that is to you know, do whatever it is you need to do thinking or using the perspective of someone who's never seen your business before. And so if if you can get your statements audited, you can, you know, eliminate immediately any commingling of funds and ensure that, you know, you know, any particular uh, categories of expenses that you use that aren't obvious um, have notes that explain exactly what they are, and perhaps um, at, at the ready uh, banking statements that can back up those uh, expenses. Uh, those are the things that, if you do it yourself, you, you pretty much take off the plate the possibility of a deal falling through just because your finances were a mess. And, you know, there's there's damage associated with entering into a due diligence period that falls apart because um, as much as we try to protect the confidentiality of all our sales, uh, you know, once the due diligence process starts, there's some 
that, that, that potential of someone in the company figuring out what's going on or uh, now just the word getting out. I mean, that potential buyer is now out amongst the world, um, you know, and, and potentially spilling the beans. Uh, you know, that, that possibility exists. So we want to maximize the probability that the first uh, qualified and interested buyer become, becomes the buyer. And uh, so the simplest way to do that is to ensure that you beat the hell out of yourself over the review of your own financial statements so that when you're presenting it, you're just presenting what you know is a pristine product. So uh, one of the tools that we created, and uh, owners on this call may want to download it on our website, freedomexit.com, is called 53 Ways to Increase the Value of Your Company. We talk a lot about, you know, not just these three things about becoming less valuable and having policies and procedures and cleaning up financials, but oh, I guess 50 other ways that owners may want to consider preparing for their exit and adding more value to their company. So just wanted to make mention of that for our listeners that would enjoy reading it. Uh, Matt, maybe and know it real quick. Yeah, can we, can we circle? Can we circle back to policies and procedures real quick? Yeah, sure. Because I just I, I have something that I think is, is is worth spending a few minutes to talk about, and that's the idea that now now let's talk just briefly to the to the group of people that say, "Yep, I got policies and procedures for everything." Okay, to that group of people. It is my observation that writing the policies and procedures is actually the easy part, which, if you've ever been through that process, should sound somewhat startling to you. The, the policies and procedures, if you, if, you, if you sit them on a table and then you stare at them, what you'll know is, it doesn't do anything and no revenue is generated by virtue of having policies and procedures. They need to be used in order for them to be successful. And most, if not the vast majority of people hate using policies and procedures and B, are not very good at it. Uh, And if you would like to test this out for yourself, just write a procedure for your company, and at your next meeting, say, hey, from now on, I need everyone to follow this procedure when you do X. And then two weeks' time, see how many times you've done X, and then compare what was done to what you wrote down. And I, I'm willing to, 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 to lay money on this right now. It's, what you'll find is you, you, you will be befuddled wait a minute, this doesn't check. I thought, I thought we talked about this procedure. And either A, they'll just completely just kind of blow it off and not use it, or B, they thought they used it, but the skill of using a procedure is not something that people are born with. And I know this because I spent a career working with individuals that were trained from from the age of 19 to 
use their nuclear trained technicians to use policies and procedures for everything that they did. And I have battle scars and gray hairs from that group of people failing to either use procedures or use them properly. And this is a group of people that are the, the nation's experts in policies and procedures. So thinking that just writing stuff down will magically create a consistent result in whatever it is those address is uh, is a, an illusion. And so writing the policies and procedures is step A, but step B is just dedicating the time and effort that it takes and, and even considering bringing in someone who specializes in policies and procedures into your company so that you create a culture that understands and respects the use of these procedures. Because if you're not careful, you can, you end up with a bunch of robots because they say, okay, fine. You want me to follow procedures? I'll follow procedures. You know? And then you, you, no matter who wrote them, unless you got God to do it, there's going to be all kinds of mistakes in there. So you need the you, you, you need the your group to be sort sort of sold on your vision on these policies and procedures because if you just if with an iron fist demand that they follow them then you end up with what we call malicious compliance where it says well okay the procedure says to do this so I'll do that even though they know it's wrong. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, we could do a whole episode on just policies and procedures. So I just wanted to throw that out, that just getting them written doesn't actually do anything. It's uh, figuring out a way to get them implemented, uh, which does not happen through one discussion at a, a, a staff meeting. And then why don't you share your your naval expression around, uh, you know, compliance with that? Uh, that's right. You get you get what you inspect, not what you expect. Yeah. So if you, uh, if you if you if you put out a procedure and say, hey, I expect everyone to follow this. Okay. Well, wait a month and then inspect what was done, and uh, then take action on the deficiencies that you found, and then repeat the process. And eventually you will get what you wanted because you inspected it. Um, it's kind of like similar to saying that hope is not a plan. So neither are expectations. So, uh, Matt, what I wanted to get into next with you was talking about, you know, the sale or transfer of a company with the people that are stakeholders in your business. And maybe you could start with how you've seen owners handle the discussion around a sale with their key executives, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the rank and file and and customers and maybe suppliers. But if you could start with, you know, what have you seen work and not work when owners talk to their key executives or management team or their number two? Well, at first I would say I think I would say about – a third of the people that we work with make the mistake of thinking that the sale of the business will go better if they can get their 
a group of their key employees to buy the business from them or even just like an all call to the employees that says, hey, we're selling the business and we would like to sell to the employees or reaching out to a a client or a customer or a supplier or a vendor. And I'd say like, like without exception, stop. Just stop, stop, stop. Okay, that instinct, although reasonable, is 100% incorrect. Stop. It, it, the, there's like, there's what, 7 billion people on the, on the planet? There's probably 600 million of them that are better potential buyers than any of the people that you're going to talk to in your company. And not because the people in your company couldn't do it or uh, are bad people. It's just that the potential negative consequences that can come from that are just uh, too large to risk. And so if you're going to share what you're doing with someone in the company, even if it's someone who you think you trust with, with the entire company, you'd be surprised. You know, I mean, when it comes down to earning a living, you know, people have to look after number one. And the, it, 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 I wouldn't be sharing this if I, hadn't, if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes multiple times where the news is shared with a couple key employees and then the next thing you know, somehow... Uh, most of the employees and all of the employees know. And although it's an irrational response, the consequence of that is that you have a lot of people that start to look for new jobs. Uh, and I say it's irrational because in most cases, the new owner is going to need those employees more than you do. Um, but it still happens. And and, and not only does it happen in a theoretical sense, I mean, I've seen this exact thing happen where these employees then go off to find another job, and guess where they end up working? They end up working at one of the competitors. And guess what happens now? The competitor, competitor's employees find out, and then the competitor's management finds out. And then this competitor starts to find out ways, look for ways that they can leverage this information against you, whether it's discussing uh, the transfer of preferred contracts that you may have with vendors or discussions with clients. Uh, But it's like watching a a horror movie where the lady gets up from the couch at 2 a.m. because she hears a noise in the backyard and she's going to go investigate it. And with everything you have, you want to tell her, no, don't, or at least turn on the floodlights or call 911 first. But you know what? She goes out there anyway, and you know what's going to happen. You just can't stop it. And that's kind of how I feel when I see uh, a business owner say, well, I first want to have – you know, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna share this information with uh, my employees or uh, you know my management team. My, my my recommendation is that you know almost without exception to hold off on having that discussion 
until you've already made the decision and have entered into the process. Uh, and I wouldn't even I wouldn't even bring it up until you have a serious buyer at the table. And even then, I would consider uh, holding off until the end of the due diligence period. So, Matt, would you say that most of the owners you're working with are going through that due diligence period and providing any information and data they need on their own or with outside advisors, you know, their accountant, their lawyer, someone like you? Well, I will say that, you know, the we we know uh you know, the data is tough to gain on this. We know that about fifty percent of businesses that go into uh, some sort of deal end up falling through. And um, I I now know and can say with confidence that the reason that happens has nothing to do with the finances or the business model. It has to do with the way uh, due diligence is, uh, is structured. And what I mean by that is most buyers, um, even the most sophisticated buyers, uh, whether it's uh, someone who's done this before or a private equity firm or a larger company who, who you know, thinks they got it all figured out, uh, when it is my opinion that when the buyer says, I would like the following 15 things, and then you go collect those 15 things and then give them to the, to the seller, that deal will fall through. Or the buyer, that deal will fall through. And uh, and I mean I have I have I can speculate as to why I think oftentimes the buyer gets overwhelmed um, whether they realize it or not you've given them too much information and now you end up with this this flurry of questions that just sort of feeds off itself and next thing you know you're talking about the employees and the lease and the uh, the age of the inventory, and, and 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 eventually somebody becomes emotional, you know, things spirals out of control, and the deal falls apart. So, you know, and not to mention, you've given away too much proprietary information because now the person walks away, and they know your whole business model. So, what I recommend is that you find someone. And if you're in Hawaii, I would recommend that someone be me or my company who understands that the due diligence process needs to be uh, controlled and deliberate and incremental, meaning whatever the, the, the initial contract states, the contingencies are. Typically, there's six to ten contingencies. Tackle them one at a time with no discussion of the other ones until that contingency is cleared. And what I have observed is it just makes the process more manageable, um, more pleasurable, to be frank, uh, and just and, 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 and more probable of resulting in a closed deal than just a flurry of exchange of information. Good advice. Uh, let me maybe have you share a few stories. Um, we've got some time that you could still continue 
the dialogue with our listeners. And I think stories are often, you know, a way that people like to learn. And maybe you could talk about, you know, a deal that went south or a deal that went well and just share some of your best stories out of, out of these last hundred transactions that you participated in. Uh, okay. Well, one story that, I mean, I, I've kind of alluded to already, but I'll, I'll give some specifics. Uh, there's a very successful uh, engineering company. Uh, they uh, they uh, manufactured um, uh, a handful of products in a very um, specific niche and have been doing that for 30-plus years, um, as well as um, they had some equipment, industrial equipment that they rented out as well. And they uh, came to us to discuss the sale of their business, and we we put forth sort of the, the, uh, our service that we could provide, and they ended up telling us that uh, they were going to hold off on working with us because they wanted to give their employees an opportunity to buy the business first. And it's a, it's kind of an awkward situation for us to be in because th- this happens often or often enough for it to be a, uh, a topic of discussion where here I am trying to tell this person not to go out into the backyard without turning on the floodlights and calling 911 first because Freddy Krueger's out there waiting for them. But yet, I'm like the worst person to be telling them that because they assume that I'm saying it because I want their business. Um, and, you know, I can remember, we'll call him Bob, saying, like, Bob, I'm telling you, it's not, it's fine. Don't, I, do, do me a favor. Don't hire me. Hire someone else. But don't do this. Don't, don't put this out to your 20 employees that you want to sell the business, but you want to give them the opportunity to do this first. Please don't do this. You don't understand that. I've been working with this team forever. This is my family. You know, you're looking at it from a dollars and cents perspective. I'm looking at it from what's the right thing to do, and this is my family, and I'm going to give you know, I want them to have the business and blah, blah, blah. Okay. You know, I mean, if you, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't. It's his business. Well, like, I don't know, four months later, he calls back, wants to meet, and he tells us what's happened. He's lost five key employees, a couple of which had very specific skills in welding that are tough to replace. They all went over to a major competitor of them, a much larger business. Um, somehow that business found out they were for sale and now had made them an offer to buy their business. Um, but the revenues were going down significantly. They weren't exactly sure why, um, but even for the, uh, the work that they had, they were having a tough time completing it because they hadn't, they, they hadn't replaced these key employees uh, yet. So the revenues are going down. They're, they're, they've lost these key employees, and now they're being approached by a much larger company to, to buy their business. And they're, now they come to us. Okay, so, so I think now we think we should sell. <laughs> you know, okay. 
What, what information did you get in this large business? Uh, oh, we gave them everything. We gave them everything they asked for. Okay, so what is it that you want me to do? Because you've you've pretty much, I mean, you you've pretty much handicapped yourself and me to do anything at this point, um, because you know, business with declining revenue becomes almost unsellable, and uh, especially one that is likely to continue to see declining revenues because they they have a competitor who's taking away business from them and. Uh, um, and they have key employees that they've lost. So we want you to negotiate a deal with this larger business. And so kind of this story has two morals to it. One is about talking to the employees, and the other one's talking about a uh, a, a larger company that has said that they want to acquire you. Because I would say... It's unbelievable. It's like 80% of the people that we talk to say, oh, yeah, yeah, so-and-so actually said they wanted to buy my business two years ago. Or, or yeah, we've been approached by so-and-so to buy the business. So I'm shifting gears here a little bit, talking about when approached by either an individual or a group or a competitor or a larger company about buying your business. You know, that's those are shark-infested waters. And this is what happens, and, and this is, I'll just continue the story, but this is not an uncommon thing. The, they say, well, they offered us, uh, you know, they offered us $3 million. And, I, and I, at the time, I thought the business, even at its best, was probably a $2.2 million business. And I was like, you know, Bob, I'm really concerned here because I think that they're making the offer just so they can see all your information. And you know the we haven't really played a game of tennis here in terms of like you haven't really gotten anything from them other than this like letter of intent, which is worth nothing to buy a business. Now you've shared all your information with them, and this is a different movie, but also one with a, a common plot where they're going to end up telling you, oh, geez, you know, your your margins are a lot smaller than we had hoped. Um, this is not, this deal's not going to work for us. Uh, we apologize. But we can offer you, and I've, I've seen this many times, uh, we can offer you uh, $50,000 and a, uh, a job offer where we will pay you a commission on all the work that you can um, uh, send our way that results in revenue. And it's like, really, that's the offer? Yeah, yeah that's the best we can do. And uh, and we've seen that multiple times. Not a great result. Am I still on air? Yeah, yeah. I said not a, not a great result there. Uh, Hello. Uh oh. <laughs> Did my, I I went out my audio. Uh, okay. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, there I we can't. go. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened there. Uh, 
you know, not a great result for those owners. And I think for for the people listening on the call, you know, those of you that have had those people approach you in the past, listen to some of our podcasts from private equity firms or serial uh, business acquisition minded uh, executives, and they'll they'll tell you through those interviews that we've had in the past, you know, their best deals come from finding an owner that's not shopping their business, that they, you know, keep reaching out to them, and finally they bite on that hook, and they're able to negotiate great deals because they're the only game in town. Uh, so heed Matt's advice. Don't go into the backyard without the lights on and calling 911. You know, don't don't tell everybody unless you've got a real clear and well-written game plan that's been vetted by some advisors and, and professionals. Uh, and if if you uh, if you're thinking about entering into some negotiations with anyone, that's going to be one-on-one. Uh, tread carefully. So. That's great advice, Matt. How about a, a good story? Let's let's try and end with a happy ending here. We're going to wrap up the call in a few. So maybe you've got a great story, a positive one to share. Uh, yeah, actually, I do. The, we had a one. Uh, we had a, a business owner that came to us. Um, really, really, I mean, just a, a, a great, great guy, and uh, he had a very successful. Um, manufacturing and retail and distribution of uh, a product that was very well known and loved by both people here locally and tourists. And, uh, you know, when he came to us, I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be great because, uh, you know, it's such a, it's got to be a great business. And we looked at his books and his, his finances were, were as strong as we had hoped. But then as we discussed, like, kind of how the business worked, we realized that he was the hamster in the wheel behind all of this. Like, so he picked out the designs and then he, uh, his, his deals for supplies were friends of his and a handful of countries and um, you know, just everything from the, and this is like a, like a, a jewelry accessories type company and everything about the company with him, like at, at the at the center of it, from who his salespeople called, he had like six different locations in Hawaii. But yet, when his salespeople had a, you know, we're gonna reduce the price because they were negotiating with a client, his cell phone rang, and uh, we we told this guy, "Wow, this is this is gonna damage your the value of your business." And and he was very – it was like a perfect client. He just said, oh, I didn't realize that, and what can I do to um, to change that? I mean, I'm willing to do whatever I need to do, and if it means delaying the sale two or three years, I'm fine with that. So we put a plan together that kind of split out his retail, his distribution, and uh, his manufacturing into sort of – three separate companies all operating under his one major corporation, but with a manager running each of the three, you know, different, three different managers and, uh, you know, policies and procedures and contracts with suppliers, not just um, uh, handshakes among friends. 
And uh, about three years later, we were able to sell the business because he did exactly what we we talked about. And three years later, this guy was much tanner than the last time we saw him because he was on a golf course every day. And he's like, geez, I'm, I don't even know if I want to sell the business now because it's so self-sufficient. Um, you know, but like we tell all business owners, like, be careful. If you find yourself saying, I can't sell the business now because it's doing too well, um, think of really take a pause as to what you're saying because the only alternative then is to say, well, I'll sell my business when it's not doing well, um, which doesn't work. Anyway, um, and we uh, we sold we sold his business uh, to a buyer who was impressed from beginning to end. The due diligence period felt like just kind of a more of a formality, and uh, and and we ended up getting almost three times the amount that we originally valued the business two years prior. That's great. I, you know, I in in our exit planning business where we help owners prepare their companies for a sale or transfer, what we look at is the ROI on the type of work that we do just can't be found anywhere else in the business because uh, when you sell your business, you get a multiple of your earnings and your projected cash flows. And so if we could tweak things where, you know, we create an extra $100,000 of income or cash flow, we might get paid 600000 for that. And so it just makes all of the effort in planning, as you've described, uh, you know, it can't be beat through any of these other um, opportunities uh, when you're an ongoing business holder. Do you agree with that? I do, and I think that the uh, yes to, to just to, to piggyback on that is the there's nothing that can beat that planning process, and I think oftentimes business owners who are not convinced of that will mentally replace that planning process with with a story or a presentation about what a new owner could do with the business. Like, look at all this possibility. And uh, as, as we say, the, that, that, that provides not even a penny to the valuation of your business. And there is no there, business perspective uh, business owners may buy the business because of all that opportunity, but they won't pay for it. And what they'll, what they'll pay for is your existing business. And uh, the, if, if if your existing business falls short of the uh, falls short of valuate your expectations for valuation, you know, exit planning is is the way and perhaps the only way uh, to overcome that. Yeah. All right, Matt, so we're going to wrap up. Any last words of advice to our listeners? Uh, I, I think that my, I would just reiterate that, uh, you know, even if you, even if you just bought your business, um, or you're in the last day of your business, you know, the ego of a business owner, and I'm a business owner myself, and I can say this is true for me as well, so I'm in it with you. Our egos can get in the way 
of the value of our business. We need to figure out ways from the very first day to make ourselves a smaller asset of the company, not a bigger asset. So every time we say, we're doing it this way because I said so, and every time we make a decision, every time we verbally train someone, or every time uh, we deal with a customer directly and, and didn't bring anyone else in on that, we're making ourselves a bigger asset of the company. And just consider the fact that every time you do that, you're making your business worth less. Um, I would reiterate that. I would reiterate policies and procedures in developing a culture that actually uses them in a way that's effective and uh, cleaning up your financials, although a pain in the neck and sometimes challenging, um, is, uh, is an absolute must. So, Matt, uh, I know our listeners can hear you um, via iTunes. Why don't you tell them a little bit about how they could get to you, and then also for those of our listeners that might be in the Hawaii area that are thinking about you know, what to do with their business, how they might want to contact you. Uh, okay, thanks. Uh, well, I think the easiest way to uh, get in touch with me is through uh, either the company website, which is smithfloyd.com. Um, and from there, it's, it's pretty self-evident on how to contact us or me. Um, and for the podcast, uh, that is also um, available through our website at Floyd. That's Smith Floyd, like half of Aerosmith and half of Pink Floyd, Smith Floyd. And uh, the podcast, if you don't want to go through the website, it's called Business is Always Personal. And uh, you can find that on iTunes. Again, that's Business is Always Personal with Matt DiGeronimo. And uh, if anyone's out there and wants to contact me directly, um, I would uh, encourage you to send me an email at my initials, which are md at smithfloyd.com. And uh, for those out there who prefer the telephone, our phone number is 808-737-0326. Terrific. So thanks so much to our listeners for joining us again. I'd uh, greatly appreciate if you listen to us through iTunes. If you could leave your feedback there or review us, it's helpful to us. And always you could email me, Noah at freedomadv.com, with any of your comments or questions. We look forward to having you with us again on another episode, so stay tuned. And Matt, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.